Yeah. Well, you know what? I stood up and I took the blows yeah. uh, in good faith. And I, I knew I, I was a bit naive. I didn't know how far spread the, the corruption was, but I just knew it was ranted and I couldn't, I couldn't be complicit and, and turn away. And I couldn't let my guys suffer under that uh, without defending them. This is episode number 143 with Craig Sawyer. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in to another show. Appreciate you being here today. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. Uh, I'm a real estate investor, lifestyle entrepreneur, and coach. And I'm here with my co-host and partner, Barbara Allen, who is a author, speaker, and gold star wife. And today's episode is, our guest today is with Craig Sawyer. Craig is the owner of Tactical Insider, which brings technical advice on weapons and combat to Hollywood. From his service in the Marines and in the Navy, including Special Forces, Craig has ample experience to draw upon in his industry. Craig is a familiar face on shows like Sniper, Deadliest Missions, Top Shot, and Rhino Wars. He's appeared on various news platforms and was also named Maxim's Maximum Warrior. Most recently, Craig is all in on his foundation, Veterans for Child Rescue, which he established to work towards ending domestic sex trafficking for minors. In this episode, Craig touches on his military service and explains why he works so hard to combat sex trafficking. He also shares another real-life experience he had as a national security-level whistleblower, and he holds nothing back. So listen in as Craig's story is packed with insight on things happening in this country and around the world that most of us are not aware of, and find out how you can support his mission against sex trafficking. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Craig Sawyer. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen, and today I get to sit down with Craig Sawyer, also known as Saw or Sawman, depending on how you know him. You may have seen him on any one of a gazillion formats, maybe the History Channel, maybe the Animal Planet, maybe through his large online following where he's done things, Craig started off in the military as a U.S. Marine and then decided to jump over and try something new for a change and became a Navy SEAL, which is an interesting story and jump. And I'd love to to get into all that. He's got a bio that is super long. Some of the highlights are he's been maximum, maximum a warrior. I got to find out what that is. He's a motocross racer, Las Vegas champion in that, I, I believe. And he's been all over the map doing his own version of good for the community and the country at large and teaching others how to do the same, most notably with the organization he founded, Veterans for Child Rescue, which we are absolutely going to get into here, how he's bringing hope to people in hopeless situations and his message for all of us in these especially trying times globally. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. Hey, Barb, thanks for uh, having me on and giving me a chance to chat. Yeah. Always good. Always good. I love every week. I'm like, oh man, I'm never going to find somebody else with another like crazy impactful story. And then boom, I find like, it, I love it. I love, I'm always so inspired and lifted up by the people that we get to bring on. And you all, you have something new to bring and your own unique way that you're, that you're using your talents and your skills to make an impact. So let's get into it. Yeah, man. How about you? Let's do it. 
Yeah. Let's go a little bit of your background first. Okay. You, what you were a, a member of the military. Let's get into that first. What prompted you to serve? Why you chose Marines? Yeah. Well, I chose the Marines because they were considered the toughest military branch. If I was going to go in the military, I had the, you know, in my little boy mind when I was a toddler, you know, I had little plastic uh, rifles and, and knives and things. And my, my son was the same way. Um, a lot of boys, you know, are, are that way. Yeah. And in my mind, I was a great warrior and I uh, wanted to do, you know, great things and, and stop the bad guys from ruining the world, you know, and, and harming the innocent. And I grew up learning about King David in Sunday school and what a great warrior he was historically from the Bible. And I just thought I saw this huge, larger than life warrior figure that really crushed the, the nation's enemies and made the world a safer place for, for their people. And I, that was kind of the, the vision that I had in my mind. And then when I started learning more about Force Recon and the Marines, the first oil recession hit in Houston. And a lot of the big jobs, corporations went under, it was bad. And I thought, man, let me take this opportunity to go live out a, a dream of mine to go become a force recon Marine. So I went in the Marine Corps, went through boot camp, went through infantry training school, and then started putting in my paperwork to go to force recon training. And that's when I learned that uh, force recon at that time in the early 80s didn't have any funding or, or budget or uh, mil um political backing or any mission. So there was a handful of guys, but they, they weren't funded and they weren't deploying and doing anything. So uh, people in the Marine Corps said, well, you should have gone to the Navy SEAL teams, Craig, if you really wanted to do real world operations, you, should, you know, the SEAL teams are the ones that with all the budget, the money and the toys. And so I got out of the Marine Corps and over to the Navy. They told me it wasn't possible and I found a way to make it happen. And I uh, went into the Navy and then uh, went through BUDS. Well, first I had to go through 10 months of uh, tech school uh, just to have a Navy job title because they figure you're going to fail out of BUDS statistically. And you need, a job. <laughs> you need a job to be qualified for, right? That's, that's the yeah. math. And so highly technical uh, rating and gunners make missiles tech. And there's a lot of uh, electronics and synchros and servos and pneumatics and hydraulics and all of these systems to, to learn how they run and, and the sonar and radar and all that. You gotta learn all that stuff. So um, 10 months later, I finally got to go out to BUDS and go through the training and uh, got graduated, went to SEAL Team 1, became a sniper instructor, got combat action, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, became the uh, lead fast attack vehicle driver because I grew up riding dirt bikes and uh, Bill Weber, the guy that had those <clears throat> off-road fast attack vehicles looks like a tactical doom buggy yeah he'd been a baja racer and so he had those things specially designed and he tested all the guys and i ended up being the best well the lead driver for the program because I, again i grew up with dirt bikes and i knew how to kind of read the train and i could drive fast without without a lot of drama um and so he chose me to, to lead that program that, that was fantastic fun and and uh, crazy adventures with that and uh, got decorated uh, for that campaign and then got picked up for uh, DevGrew, which uh, everybody's calling still Team 6 now, and then spent uh, another seven years there at the highest level. And uh, we don't talk about what goes on there, but it was a fantastic experience. Uh, some of the best patriots and heroes you, you'd ever meet. And, uh, and then when we started having babies, uh, I realized that I was gone 300 days a year. And so I needed to, uh, be home more. And so, uh, went into the federal air marshal service and cause it was only a small group, but they were willing, uh, high, high morale and, and highly trained back before nine 11. 
And then after 9-11, expanded into this huge program, and I ended up helping stand up the Las Vegas field office and uh, served there for another two years and then ended up blowing the whistle on a, a corrupt uh, a, a senior executive from the FBI who had come to the Air Marshal Service. And they eventually fired him for gross mismanagement, which was exactly what I'd reported him for. So uh, it, was, it was a good job on my part, I suppose. It was a righteous whistleblowing call. Uh, but it was expensive because it cost me my retirement because uh, none of the five entities that are supposed to defend a national security whistleblower uh, did their part. And they were all found to be corrupt after the fact. Wow. Can we stop there for one second? Yeah. I got to yeah. go into that because that's a um, there are so many things that I, I resonate with. The more I talk to people, more I realize I've had this crazy ass life myself because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I relate to that, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been there, but I mean, maybe not this particular level in this instance, right? But so the whistleblower, you know, I can't even imagine what that's like at that level. I um, had to spend like a year kind of getting information and details on a senior official that I worked for, you know, for my county. And that was freaking insane show at the county level right yeah no doubt um so i can't imagine what that would be like at the federal level what well, can you can you this case should just be a little bit this, yeah this, I've, I've been writing the book for years i had a I had a uh, best-selling author decide to spend two years co-writing the book with me and we were we went through the whole thing and at the end of it he said that his publisher said that they wanted seal team six secrets or it wasn't yeah marketable and i said that's never been on the table well, what do you think you know he talked yeah. to me for two years <laughs> no better and he's like well they say that's what they need so anyway he was obviously the wrong author to bring the truth to the people this guy specializes in basic really uh fiction and yeah. uh, this is hard-hitting real world stuff so i've got another uh friend who's been she's fantastic so she's writing the book with me so we're going to expose it and, and let the american people know what the what everybody refers to as the deep state really is uh it's just a bunch of bureaucrats who have become corrupted in the federal system and uh they don't they they benefit from the corruption that exists now and they don't want it to change and so they're dug in deep and they refer to it as deep state some people don't understand what that is but it's just a really a, a it's a government bureaucrat primarily that, that comprise what we refer to as the deep state. So anyway, I blew the whistle on this guy and uh, Merit Systems Protection Board. Uh, he began, uh, first first thing he did is he called me and said, hey, the, uh, the inspector general just told me that you uh, reported my management. And I thought to myself, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> inspector general ICE in, in 2004. So that's your culprit. Uh, that person's corrupt. Uh, they they called the the crook instead of investigating him. So the reason I blew the whistle is because I had three agents come into my office within one week, saying, "Boss," and I had two hundred and ten agents to manage for about six months until they could hire more. Uh, and what agency managers. was this? This was Federal Air Marshal Service. Okay, federal, yeah. And so uh, one guy came and said, "Hey, boss, you know, wear your back plates. You know, your 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 armor in the office because <clears throat> it's it's so hostile here. This guy, this new." Uh, manager is uh he's so hostile he, he's ruining all of our careers and all the best guys and uh man, did they mean that literally no he was he was kind of joking like wear your back plate so you don't get stabbed in the back it was, it was i asked because my husband was killed by a fellow soldier it, this oh was, wow yeah 
So well, that's why I like that stuff. It's not crazy to me. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's not- no, well, it, it does happen. And yes. he's being literal in the sense of, hey, watch your six around here right. because this is getting this yeah. is getting like a pressure cooker as far as hostility and the tension in here. And it was, it was really bad. And uh, the first guy I called, I said, hey, look, cooler heads prevail. This guy's only supposed to be here for two years. He's basically a tourist. He's an SES level executive. And uh, he was he was retired or fired from the FBI. We don't still know which. Uh, but um, they're only, they only have a two-year contract. So just do your job. Keep the high road. Stay professional. This guy will be gone before you know it. And we'll run it you know, professionally. And we'll, we'll restore the morale here. And the performance, uh, we'll get back to to optimal once he's gone. Well, the guy didn't want to leave. He liked that lucrative second job. Yeah. And uh, and they hired him to, to create an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding between the FBI and the Air Marshal Service, so that when we arrested a terrorist on the plane, we'd hand him off to the FBI on the deck. Well, having that MOU made sense to me. So I, I, got, I understood why he was there. Uh, but what I learned while he was there is he was crooked. He was a corrupt bureaucrat. He wasn't. Uh, I heard him brag into one of his uh, SES level friends in the hallway, a visitor, that he'd never gotten that S- that uh, MOU written. He'd never got it done. He chuckled about it. He thought it was brilliant that uh, he was slow rolling it and continuing to extend his his contract there to collect two paychecks. So anyway, um, second guy came into the office. Boss, hey, it's hostile. It's sketchy. Somebody's going to go postal in here. And I was like, hey, you know what? I hear you. It's it's a common thought out there. Apparently, he's he's attacking all of us. He's trying to ruin our careers. But just stay out of it. You know, just focus on your job. Be professional. And then the third guy came in. I was like, okay, I've got a responsibility to to take action or be complicit in this. Yeah. Self. And so I talked to my boss. Uh, my so I was the number three in charge of that field office at this time because this guy had come in and, and they put him in charge of the whole thing without making him qualify or train as an air marshal, right? So it was a ridiculous arrangement. Um, so what this the what he was doing was he was hunting his own agents. He was hunting all of my best agents who were spec ops veterans who were making the the highest performance standards who weren't in trouble. The guys that were the most promotable, the hard chargers, the, the seasoned uh, decorated veterans and the professionals that he thought were in danger of, of being promoted for his job. Oh, and he was just picking you. That's off. what it turned out to be. So he was, he was, <laughs> he was literally fabricating false accusations and dirty wow. up their, their dirt, their, their files. And now what we learned later, once a, con, a special congressional delegation investigation came into that field office is that he had been keeping illegal dirt files on his own agents, not on terrorists. I never, I, in two years of, of management meetings, I never once heard this guy talk about terrorists or hijackings or aircraft security, nothing. The only things he talked about were how to humiliate his own agents and, and uh, talk down about them, how to discredit his guys and how stupid and worthless they were and how cool and intelligent and sophisticated he was. That's, that's the only things that he was speaking about in the, in the meeting. So it wasn't hard to understand the hostility and, and where his head was at. So this guy was a draft dodger from the Vietnam era. So he had a chip on his shoulder, insecure, obviously. Uh, he's a wormy, balding, pot-bellied, disheveled man. Um, and he was a bureaucrat. His paperwork was, was his thing. 
And uh, so, yeah, it got really bad. So um, Merit Systems Protection Board did not intervene to stop his retaliation against me. Immediately began retaliating once the uh, inspector general called him. And uh, the Office of Special Counsel did not intervene. Scott Block was uh, head of the Office of Special Counsel. He got sentenced to 10 years in prison for his corruption. But Barack Obama, uh, before he went to prison, Barack Obama stroked a pardon and just let him off. Wow. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> so do the math on that one. We all see what, what, what's oh, going on with man. these guys, right? Um, so five entities all together, the OSC, the MSPB, uh, FLIOA, um, Office of Inspector General, they all failed me. None of them did anything to stop the retaliation. So once I'd exhausted the five entities, available to me as a national security whistleblower i uh i just i sent in my resignation i'm like i'm not your whipping boy here yeah and uh i've done my job in good faith and i've reported you and you should be investigated and prosecuted for for your damage the day there were 210 agents at that field office and he decimated he ripped it down about 33 guys and, and nothing ever happened to him? Nothing ever happened wow. to him other than uh, either they fired him or they forced him mm. to retire. We don't know exactly which because the, 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 the new management of the air marshal service were bureaucrats too. What happened after 9-11 is the Secret Service defecated the, the dregs of their agency onto the air marshal service. All of the worst who couldn't uh, survive uh, and do well in the Secret Service were ejected out at the wow. bottom of the Secret Service, and they became the new upper brass of the Air Marshal Service. And the FBI pretty much did the same thing and a couple of other agencies. So you have uh, the failures and the rejects of other agencies heading up you know, the top 200 uh, management personnel of the Air Marshal Service became people who were never trained or qualified to be Air Marshal Service, but were given you know, a good job where they could make coffee and make a couple hundred grand a year. Oh, that just gets you, right? It just like yeah, it grows, after grows all that, like you're the one of, that took the you you took the weight of that, and he and nothing happened. Yeah, well, you know what? I stood up and I took the blows yeah. uh, in good faith, and I I knew I, I was a bit naive. I didn't know how far spread the the corruption was, but I just knew it was rancid, and I couldn't I couldn't be complicit and, and turn away, and I couldn't let my guys suffer under that uh, without defending them. And he was coming after me too. Yeah, he he had taken one of my junior agents she was basically a genius level iq i think she she went through uh, ucla at uh, 16 years old and uh, smoked through so Jeez. Uh, yeah, you mean my, that literally yeah <laughs> she was minority female young and i think this guy thought that she might be weak and so he cornered her in his office one time when i was um uh not in the office and shut the door behind her. And he had his right-hand man, fellow crook, uh, in there. And they tried to pressure her into a signing of, of um, a fabricated uh, EEO complaint, equal opportunity complaint against me. And she goes, well, why would I sign that? That's bogus. Yeah. And, and they just kept saying, well, things could just, things would be a, a lot better around here for you if you just sign it. If you just sign it, he could be gone. She goes, why would I want him gone? He's taking care of us. He's the best manager I've ever had. So uh, she called me that night. She was shaking. She goes, they're, they're after you. And I'm wow. like, what are they doing? I'm like, calm down. What do you mean they're after me? She goes, no, they are after you. Here's what they tried to do today. And I'm like, wow, okay. Well, um, 
we'll just we'll just watch and monitor and, and see what they do so they kept trying to shoot at me with all these fake accusations and it bounced off because you know um my nose was clean and we, our field office was performing at the highest level and anyway eventually they just decided to just throw throw an accusation and try to make um try to make it stick because they knew that nobody was overseeing them. All, all of the over oversight was uh, corrupted and they could do whatever they want. So they, um, they tried to transfer so me to, yeah. yeah, they tried to transfer me eventually to, to uh, headquarters in DC to work with the 200 bureaucrats that had been, you know, um, you know, a bunch of draft dodgers and, and the yeah. dregs of the secret service guys all working in headquarters in DC they wanted me to work in the middle of that, that field office where they hated veterans, especially spec ops veterans and, and a SEAL Team 6 veteran, forget it. You're, forget it. Yeah. you're the most hated guy on the planet there, especially if you're decorated for heroic service and combat and are respected by your peers and you tell the truth and your performance is top of the charts. They can't have you there. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, the, the day before I was supposed to cash in, I, I uh, pitched in my resignation and I walked and I went and started doing high threat mobile security um, for a corp, a company run by, uh, some Delta force friends of mine, so uh, really good you, guys. Dur- during that whole incident, that whole drawn out process where you were in the air marshals, did you, you had a family then you say you're like, cause you had, Oh, yeah, that, this is why, this is why it should be made into yeah. a, a movie. I, they were, my wife was, was suffering from postpartum depression. Her baby, uh, well, our baby, um, yeah was suffering from a, an illness and he was in the hospital. He's in intensive care for a while. And, uh, you know, it's customary and standard for the manager of a field office to visit family members who are in the hospital, send out flowers or they didn't do yeah. that, any of that for us. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so my wife was, was really depressed and having our, our son Caden hormonally wiped my, my wife out. So she was, once they, tested her later like you got none of this this and this left in your system here we've got to supplement you and once they did she felt fine uh, but but at this time man right after the baby it, it uh you're probably familiar with people that have suffered that it's it's catastrophic right so yeah. she was worried and stressed and um you know they were letting me know that they were monitoring my illegally monitoring my my home email and uh the home phone lines were clicking this is back when they were, you know, this is in 2004. We still had home phone lines. Yep. The phones were clicking every time you'd pick it up and talk. And I'm like, man, don't they have better wiretapping uh, capability than this by now? So, um, and this guy was using, so this guy's wife was head of the Las Vegas FBI field office at the time. So while he was retired in Las Vegas, he was given the air marshal service, um, office to manage and his wife was managing the the fbi field office well he was using her fbi agents to investigate his own air marshals right not for wrongdoing but just to create the illegal j edgar hoover style yeah. dirt files that he was later caught with so a lot of wrong wrongdoing um on the fbi's part in las vegas there in 2004 and you're trying to deal with all that when you have a newborn and your wife is in, in yeah. a level of crisis and you yeah. have all that coming were, down on you. Like that's just, it was, yeah, it was ugly. It was lot, stupid. Yeah. And it was, it was gross mismanagement. They were fo- following her. 
they were stalking her, parking in front of the house in their fed cars and following her to and from the grocery store. How did you guys to, get through that? Like as a, as human beings, you know, well, about as a marshal. For, for my wife, it was yeah. very stressful and, and, uh, and scary. Cause she's like, this is the federal government and they're after us. And I said, no, baby, these are cowards and weaklings who are abusing the, the positions that we pay them as taxpayers, uh, to, they're supposed to be going after criminals yeah. and they're going after the, the, their own people instead because they're cowards. That's what bureaucrats and cowards do. They're, they're pathetic baby. So I, as a SEAL team six operator and decorated war veteran, I was, I was amused and annoyed. I was more annoyed and aggravated at it and disappointed than, right. than anything else. But she was very, very stressed and very scared. It was, it was a terror campaign against her. So, yeah. um, Anyway, we, we got through it by, you know, a lot of our friends were laughing at the, this, this clown and his, his fellow fed clowns that were pulling this stuff. So it was funny to us. We got through it by sticking together with our friends and family and realizing uh, what the situation was and just uh, bonding really. And, uh, and then taking action. I, you know, I decided at one point I was like, I'm not going to let my family be subjected to this anymore. And, uh, I could tell it was scaring the living bejesus out of the bureaucrats because they would, uh, um, they would call me and say, where are you? So they were there. Once I got the orders to go to DC from Las Vegas, I'm like, right. I'm not moving there. My wife's like, I'm not moving there. And I said, okay. So I spirit her out to, for, to Tucson to live with her uh, mom for a couple months while I finished up there uh, in Vegas. And uh, we sold our house. We sold it in like 48 hours and uh moved everything and i moved in with a buddy i didn't tell anybody uh who i was uh, living with there for the last few weeks and uh they wanted to know where i was at so that the number two in charge of the field office another crook at the time was calling me where are you where are you i'm like well i'm right here what do you mean where where am i well where are you in town i'm like why do you need me to come into the field office are we having a meeting or uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, this is after I'd blown the whistle, right? And they, they're like, we got a SEAL, SEAL Team 6 operator after us that's not scared to blow the whistle, and he's going to expose, and we're going to lose all, all our leverage and, and, and a corrupt little caper here, right? So they, they had a problem in me. And uh, I was just out to get them. I, I just thought that they should do their job in good faith and quit ruining my best agent's careers. Right. So um, they had asked me where I was, and call, call me back on a, on a hard line. I'm like, oh, okay. I'll call you right back. And I'd hang up on my government cell phone and I'd drive, you know, like 30 minutes across town at a Walmart and I'd put in a quarter. I'd call him. Okay. What do you need? Where are you? I'm like, I'm right here in, in Las Vegas. Why you, you got me by cell phone. You got me by email. You got me yeah. by text message. Um, what else do you need? You need me to come in for a meeting? Where are you? I'm like, why are you asking me? I said, are you calling all of the agents and asking them where yeah. they are? You know, I, I don't understand. Why don't you help me understand why you're doing this? Just, 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 just let me know where you. So it was, it was fun for me to kind of poke back at right. the at the crooks and the cowards because I knew they were scared. And guys would go, uh, they'd come back and say, "Hey, boss, uh, I, I didn't. I was surprised, but I I told the, the the this manager that that you were. This is after the fact that Sawman's back in town for to teach a training course, and then they said that." the boss's face would just turn completely white. 
And they're like, man, I didn't expect that reaction. I'm like, I, I wouldn't have expected that either. But they're like, he was terrorized. And <laughs> why if your if your life is such that you're terrorized right. by a decorated patriot who just tells the truth and, and does the right thing, man, you are in the wrong. So it, it it was satisfying to see him fired for gross mismanagement or forced to resign overnight. So we learned that he was talking big smack uh, to all the agents there. Um after I was gone, that he, he wasn't going anywhere on Friday. And then uh, on Monday, his, his office was empty. He was gone. No explanation. No, uh, you know, no typical mm-hmm. retirement ceremony or, or wrap-up or any of that. He was, just, he was just gone. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here again, real quick, and we'll get right back to this week's episode. But first, I wanted to let you know about an offer that we just put out there. It's your chance to get a free t-shirt from American Snippets in conjunction with our brand new community called The Great American Syndicate. The Great American Syndicate is for proud, grateful, patriotic Americans, and most, most importantly, driven Americans who have that entrepreneurial spirit, people who want to pursue more out of life and live their own version of the American dream. Our community is all about connection, collaboration, and contribution. So if you want to claim your free t-shirt, all you have to do is pay shipping and handling. Go to greatamericansyndicate.com. Supplies are limited, so act now. When you share this story with people who... Uh, aren't in the government or military or maybe haven't experienced something like that. Are you met with skepticism? And I'm asking this for a reason. Are you met? No, with not really. People, people, the people that know me and and know my life's journey and, and yeah. integrity and honor and, uh, and, and know the federal government or have friends and family who do, they're like, no, we, we know, I could tell you several stories, very similar. So that overwhelmingly people get it. They, they, they know that it's, that's how, a lot of the feds are that's and the problem with the federal government is that it disincentivizes performance effectiveness it they it when when they when they treat everybody the same when your job is guaranteed if you're going to get paid whether or not you perform or don't perform well let's say johnny a is lazy shows up late if ever and doesn't perform and and Stevie B does. He's Stevie B's early, and he's he's crushing it, man. You ask him to do something, he's there early. He's on it. It's squared away. Well, why would Stevie B continue doing that if Johnny A is going to get treated the same? This yeah. guy could be home with his family more, spending more of his energy and time at home, where Johnny A's benefiting to the same degree as Stevie B, right? So. That's the problem with federal government is the, the, while we all want job security, they guarantee it too much. So it's counterproductive to, to have it that guaranteed because it kills uh, performance incentive yeah, and it kills happens, the merit system. It happens in the education system occasionally too with tenured yeah. teachers. Um, you know, yeah. It happens in a lot of different systems. I've seen it. Well, that's interesting. At another point in time, I'm going to track you down and go through another instance, because I'd be curious to get your take on it, but that's not here or there. I would like to hop through your list here. Um, I want to talk about something a little unusual here, your Animal Planet Rhino Wars here, which, I mean, that's not something that you normally see people doing, right? So 
how did that come about? How did you get into that? Like what drew you to well, protecting rhinos at great risk to yourself? It wasn't like, yeah, I'm just going to go well, to the office and hand out flyers, right? Like I was, I was contracting overseas for the department of state and another agency that we don't talk about. And yeah. I was doing some television stuff, top shot on history channel and, uh, and, and things like that. Well, I got a call from a producer who was a wildlife documentary filmmaker in South Africa. And he's a South African special forces veteran. And he reached out to me and said, Hey, we're, we, we want to help this problem by having some Americans run operations there and, and run it your way and, and be disruptive to the local corruption and everything that's going on and have your successes against the, the poachers to save the last of the endangered rhino, but we want to film it so that the rest of the world can see the problem and understand how bad it is so that they'll bring better support, a better financial support to save the last of the endangered rhinos and uh, stronger pressure against the criminals uh, so that there's greater enforcement and stronger penalties. And so that's how it started. And we went over there to film a six week uh, trailer um, so to basically to get familiar with the area and begin running initial operations and film that to show animal planet, what the series would look like. It was supposed to be picked up for a series. Right. And sadly, some executives involved, uh, were, were wired to create it like Jersey shore with rhinos, right? They just, <laughs> oh they God. wanted, they wanted squabble. They wanted that's drama. That's a good description. Like it's so <laughs> Yeah, that's that, yeah. that that's their minds are in the gutter. Look, it's Hollywood, yeah. right? Um, there, the, we all know the culture of Hollywood now. It's all coming out more and more. So we, my team, were there and to run real operations in good faith and and really save the rhinos. And we learned that uh, uh, there was just so much behind the scenes. What they, what the, the directors and producers seem to be most interested in is, is if my guys ever got tired, we've been up for several days and nights working out of a safe house and and uh, run, running along operations. If one of my guys ever raised his voice and got frustrated, uh, uh, even for a second, the boy, the cameraman would come running like vultures and like piranhas, still a piece of meat in the Amazon, right? Yeah. And so it showed us what they were after. They were after that drama rather than the real world conflict between my team and the poachers. And uh, anyway, I, I had preemptively redlined some of the contract ahead of time that gave me the leverage to prevent them from doing that. And Hollywood's not used to. So, so if they call you talent, so look at Jersey shore, if you're talent, you're just some young desperate in their minds, some desperate college kid who just wants to be on TV and you'll do anything to be on TV. Well, we were seasoned professionals and and decorated veterans and that wasn't us. We didn't really care to be on television. Uh, We were there to help, the rhinos and so the fact that they wanted to kind of uh, make it silly and dishonor us uh, caused us to i just i forced their hand in a couple ways and uh they didn't like that and so they never picked it up for a series wow did you know anything about rhinos before you went there like was that no i i i didn't we learned we learned when when we were there and that was there's a guy fantastic guy named adrian um who just um, and uh, so many people around uh, Aquavision, Peter Lamberty, fantastic guy. He runs Aquavision. He's the guy that headed it up. Uh, he wasn't uh, involved in the production 
And uh, I would expect he'd probably be heartbroken at, uh, at how this thing was, um, you know, perverted and, and tried to be turned into something less than. Yeah. Because uh, his vision was something legit. And that, he's the reason I went to go volunteer and actually do it. But um, so many people around us had grown up there and spent so much time in the bush and knew so much about the animals. It was a fantastic, larger than life experience. I love the animals, man. I just, uh, especially the elephants, because they are so social and they grieve over their dead and they, they are so, uh, they have so much caregiving instinct for their little ones. It's really compelling and inspiring for me. I just, I just love them. I, I could spend my life over there really just hanging out with the elephants and, um, and just watching them. And, and, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So yeah, yeah a lot of people taught us a lot of things. So we learned while we were there. Yeah. Everything is a learning experience if you let it be right. And like, that'll probably, I imagine just stay with you that, you know, you'll just never lose that. And what a yeah. crazy opportunity. Yeah, I'll always so- treasure those experiences, man. And there were, of course, the, the, you know, the production, we were, we were at um, sanctuaries where they had uh, white, you know, albino lion, baby white cubs beautiful yeah. little cubs and we spent the day playing with a lot of these animals and I, I i begged them for footage or or pictures i'm like i'll never you told me we have it covered you'll have yeah. access to all this and i never got any of it so i don't even have one picture of me with those lion cubs Aww. we spent the day playing with them it was just a great experience and but that's hollywood man they don't care no uh, if that was your uh, you know experience and you, you would like to remember that and have those images they're just not going to tell you in fact uh, another thing about that that industry one of the things that they love to do is have people hopeful people send in a disc with their their um their sizzle reel that shows off their work and a eight by ten glossy expensive phone certain type of stock and and a really high quality printed resume and all that stuff well they still do it even though everything's online, they could just click and watch it and see it. Now they want, they don't want, they want you to go through the, through the agony or the expense and the hope of sending that because a lot of them, I, I know guys that, that know a lot of these executives, they, they literally get off on taking people's, you know, young is, is aspiring actresses yeah. throwing their package right in the garbage without ever looking at it. There's a sick sense of, uh, um, um, pleasure of, uh, doing that to people. And uh, I guess they get off on the power that they have or something. Yeah. So uh, people audition (laughs) for something, if they don't get the part, even though they've flown out there, maybe they've stayed a hotel, they've auditioned, they've gotten their hopes up and uh, you know, dozens of emails. They never tell them that they didn't get the part. They just leave them to hang and hope that they'll get the part until they eventually one day they see the series or the movie on TV and realize they weren't in it. It's, it's, it's just pathetic. It's a brutal it's a bad, world out bad there, Bad culture, right? man. Brutal, brutal industry. I know, now, let me say this. Yeah. I know a lot of uh, white hat patriot Christian people in Hollywood, uh, actors and producers, uh, good people. Um, but the, but that that industry is full of rancid um, people who hate our country, man, and, and uh, morally lost. A lot of them psychologically shattered you know, victims of uh, childhood abuse and so forth. And their perception of this world is just really, really bitter and uh, they abuse anything they have. So it's a, it's a dark uh, undercurrent in that it's called the city of angels, but it's uh, it's the opposite. It's a city of false dreams and uh, it's a lot of hostility and uh, perversion and, and corruption. But um, 
you know what? The, the good people still making good good movies once in a while here and there. And uh, I believe in supporting the good guys. So well, uh, there's, there's good, good everywhere, segue. no matter where you go. That's a good segue good into people. what you're doing now, right? So let's get to that because I have kept you off on so many other topics for so long now because you've got a lot of different ways we could go. So let's oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into it. You founded Veterans for Child Rescue. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, let's talk about that. I founded it because after Rhino Wars, people were demanding that I do more. I'm like, I do more. They they hired me to go over there and run operations, and uh, I'm just a busted up veteran. But uh, they they saw that I had uh, the the history of standing up meaningful operations in austere environments of war torn countries and so forth for different agencies and starting new uh, programs, and so I, I like doing that. And so I thought, okay, well, do more, Sawman, you do more. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of demand for this because people were loud, you know, yay, great work with Rhino Wars, you know, go get them, you do more. I'm like, okay. So I stood up the International Coalition Against Poaching and I brought in all kinds of uh, allies from intelligence community, diplomatic community, counter-terrorist community, and some big people from uh, Detroit auto industry. And uh, we had allies and assets all over the continent of Africa, an estimated $60 million uh, capability with helicopters everywhere, off-road vehicles that could go through anything, silent, battery-powered stuff, weapons, uh, all kinds of sophisticated drones, cameras, and suppressors, and night vision, and intelligence, and operators, and uh, diplomatic connections. And we were wired. We were connected. We had Africa completely wired. We were going to go and destroy poaching in Africa. And all of the same people that are demanding I do more. Now, when it was time to actually go and deploy, I'm like, okay, now fund this organization. We stood up a nonprofit org and like, we're like, just just fund it to get the operators over there, put food in their bellies, yeah. you know, pay for their airfare. Let's let's get over there and start crushing this. They wouldn't even fund that. They wouldn't even fund it. It was zero money coming in through that. And after a year, um, some of the Detroit Auto guys that said they were going to help us uh, never did. They said they were going to connect us to all their big Fortune 500 donors, and they, they never did. And, that is uh, a familiar theme as well. Yeah, and then I I, I got wind, yeah. yeah, I got wind that they were uh, reaching out to people for investors. I'm an mm-hmm. in investment. There's no return on this. This is a nonprofit org. What do yeah. you guys talk about investors? So I turned the whole thing off. I just I I turned off the website. I deleted it. I deleted everything. I I killed it all. They're like, you, you can't just do that. I said, I just did. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are doing, but you're not checking in with me. And uh looks predatory to me. I'm not having any part of it. So I turned it off. And uh and a lot of the big donors, potential donors that I knew said, Craig, we love you and, and trust you, but we don't trust Africa. And there's so much corruption there that it's we've donated to different counterpoaching efforts over the decades and it's it all it always gets undermined by the cor- local corruption there in africa so we're not really inclined to donate and, and give and so i'm like okay well the people don't want it. i can't drag the people i'm not a billionaire right um and in fact i, I mean i have no retirement you know they've blown the whistle on that crook in vegas cost me my retirement and so oh, really yeah so i don't have any pension or anything like that so no. i'm like well um it's not up to me to save the world by myself as a, uh, I do have to feed my family somehow. Right. So 
uh, I did more film and television work and uh, went back and continued contracting. And uh, then um, I learned about child trafficking and how bad that was from a friend of mine in an intelligence agency. And we both grew up just north of Houston. And he was saying that this, this area is the worst there is at child sex trafficking. I'm like, how on earth is this area so conducive to that? That's 180 degrees out counter to our culture here in Montgomery County, Texas. And he said, well, that's probably why it's so easy for the crooks because the people are unwitting. They would never believe that people would do that here. And they're doing it out of wealthy people's homes. You know, maybe have killed children in cages in the bedroom or something. And people come in and out of the dark at night and, and uh, nobody really picks up on it. And uh, so anyway, I started talking to agents that were running um, different investigations and raids and things like that. And I started learning how dark and how absolutely pervasive it is here, how big it actually is. And I was like, okay, the people need to know because I didn't know. And we can't fight what we don't know. So I realized my best contribution would be to expose it, to compromise the enemy's operation, to expose it, rip the lid off of it, and make it impossible for them to do this here anymore. Whip over some rocks. Yeah. Bang pots and pans, turn on all the lights and go, look at this, America. Mm -hmm. And, um, and alert the populace, alert 320 million Americans to it so that we can all be the neighborhood watch. And now these scumbags have nowhere to hurt, hurt, uh, nowhere to hide, nowhere to turn right. and do it anymore because everybody's going to be dogging them, videoing their license plates and faces and pinpointing them and putting together cases and burning these scumbags. And that's what needs to happen. And so I realized the best alert piece is a documentary. So uh, I started rounding up the money to film Contraland because Big Hollywood wasn't going to do it. Uh, obviously, so many of them, right. like uh, Weinstein and so forth, they're involved, right? So, in uh, all the six major studios, right, they're all run by uh, anti-American Marxist uh, globalist outlook type people. They all subscribe to that outlook, and that's why all the the messaging is so dark coming out of Hollywood. So I realized I was going to have to do it organically. I was going to have to do the whole thing, indie, independent, raise the money. So I started doing crowdfunding through GoFundMe and different um, campaigns like that. And one by one, each of those platforms tried to block us and keep us from doing it. And uh, that's, that was the eye opener that a lot of the, there's a lot of uh, Islamic influence in uh, the crowdfunding platforms, uh, a lot of uh, Saudi Yeah, go go research who owns and runs a lot of the executives and a lot of these uh, crowdfunding platforms. Very, very Islamic now because look, we've made them about trillionaires over the last few decades buying all of our oil from them, right? We've made them extravagantly rich and they can buy whatever they want, including including corporations uh, that control our, our online social media and crowdfunding and everything else. So anyway, they were blocking us. I realized, uh, I was going to have to found a nonprofit organization to round up the money to make the documentary to yeah. alert the people. I'm like, wow, could this be any more difficult? And so we went through <laughs> all of that. And while we we're going through all of that, our daughter got abducted and what? abused and raped. Yeah, there's a guy. We 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 got him prosecuted last July of 19, uh, 2019. Uh, for 68 years. He was a repeat rapist. He'd been uh, let out multiple times of prison. 
How and, old was uh, your daughter? Can I talk about this for She for just turned second? 18. She was 18. And where she just where had her 18th happen? birthday. Uh, downtown uh, Tucson near the University of, of Tucson. Just like literally you know, taken the off of the street by a stranger? No, she was coming out of a Subway sandwich shop. She'd gone in there to use the restroom. And when she came out, he came and put his arm around her and put a knife to her side. In they've broad got a, they've got the in security people. Yeah, it was a mill. It was it was late at night. Uh, there was not really anybody on the side okay. in front of it right then. So, um, we've got the security cam footage. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. I mean, it's so, good you had the footage to stop, but so that happened. She got away from him um, on her own. She, yeah, she she eventually she started psychologically profiling him. She started asking him questions and talking to him and figuring out what made him tick because he'd said he'd murdered all the other girls before her and that he didn't oh know why gosh. he hadn't, hadn't killed her yet. He had a knife to her the whole, the whole night. The knife was obnoxious. It was like one of those big, uh, like, I don't know, like a big Islamic a trophy knife or something that you'd see on eBay. He was like, like huge. Um, and they, they found it in his house. And uh, she'd given the description of it um, before they'd found it. They raided the guy's house and then they, they, they picked him up on the sidewalk and uh, arrested him. But um, how long was she with him for? How long? Uh, uh, most of the night, several hours. And she was, and uh, he had raped her again and again. And um, really, really nasty episode. So we got a call from her uh, frantic. Uh, hysterical screaming into the phone. Uh, my wife woke me up crying, and uh, um, so I, I called the sheriff's department while, while my wife was on the phone with my daughter to get uh, got my daughter. If she could tell me a cross street, she was heading home, and if she could give me a cross street, I could I could figure out where she was and get sheriff's department that were already out across town to intervene and get to her quicker than I was to safeguard her until I could get there. Right, and. Uh, we couldn't even get really get cross streets out of her. She was, she was hysterical and she was just boogie and straight home. Yeah. Terrorized. So we got her home and we got her to the hospital and she decided to fight back and went through the entire rape kit procedures and they took all the DNA and everything. So they, yeah, they, they put the dude away. Um, right. Yeah. You guys have Psycho. been through it. He should have never, he should have, yeah. he should not. He, there was another warrant out for him at the time that the city of Tucson never um, bothered to go pick him up on oh. for months. And he should not right. have been on the streets when he took our daughter. So that's wow. what soft enforcement does folks. Soft judges yeah. harm the innocent people by letting these re repeat predators destroy more and more lives. It's no service to yeah. the, to the citizenry to be soft on uh, repeat criminals uh, folks. It's, it's bad. It harms everybody. So is she, a little extra proud of what you're doing now. She <laughs> is. She is. There, there came a time when uh, we were running sting operations, joint sting operations yeah. with federal and local law enforcement. And so, and we were filming the documentary. So we were filming all the operations too, to show people how quickly the, the predators would come for an ad that offers up a, a, the product that they want, which is right. a child for, for sex. Well, she said, Hey, uh, Papa, I understand you you use junior decoy agents that are about my age. Can I go serve as a junior decoy agent? I said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going anywhere near predators uh, ever. And uh, she goes, well, what about the girls that do it? 
Are they better than me? I'm like, it's not that they're better than you, sweetie, but that's something that they've thought about a long time and they've decided to do. And she goes, well, I've decided to do it. And I'm like, oh God, here we go. And so her counselor said it'd be healthy uh, to let her do it, to fight back. And our own teammates, my own teammates said, hey, Saul, you should probably let her do it, man. It'd be good, good to let her fight back. And then my own wife told me, Craig, you should, you should let her do it. She, you'll, she'll be right there with you. Who better? Yeah. And, uh, and then my daughter Aspen, she looked right through me as only she can. She goes, Papa, I'm going to do this with or without you. I yeah. need to do this. And I'm like, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it with your papa. Yeah. Or I can keep you safe. You're going to be within arm's reach of me. And uh, okay, then. So we we went off and did it. And you'll see that in Contraland. You, you, there's cameras everywhere. So they caught everything. Wow. Um, Good for her, and, man. Good for yeah, her. She's yeah, she's a scrappy little Long one. Man. She's, yeah. yeah, she's got Good the heart her. of a lion, that little girl. She's barely five foot tall, but she's uh, she's got the heart of a warrior, man. She's... Don't mess with her. That's great. How many, <laughs> how many kids do you have? We have two. Two? Yeah, boy and girl. Yeah. That's like how normal people do it. I had four boys. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we can't choose though, man. No, I know. We cannot <laughs> choose. You know that. I know. You go, I'm going to have a boy. I'm going to have a girl. Yeah, nope, nope, no, whatever. Nothing's normal. Wow. Well, good for her. I'm glad that your daughter is okay. I'm glad that your family has come through everything that you've come through, you've had more than a fair share of obstacles and challenges and stuff. How does that relate? Do you think, I was just talking to uh, someone yesterday, our guest yesterday, uh, Marshall Silver, who's been through his own stuff too. It's my personal feeling, and I want to see if you, how you feel on this, that given the COVID crisis, that literally, I don't think anybody could have foreseen the globe being shut down, like everybody being told to stay home from, like, this is historic, crazy times, right? Well, but I feel it, like, yeah, I, I just feel like people have gone through sudden, unexpected, traumatic turns in their lives before are less like surprised and shocked and unprepared to deal with the enormity of that shock than people who maybe haven't gone through something so catastrophic, <laughs> you know, yeah. in their lives. Do you feel that way or do, is it like? I see. I grew up with my my parents and their visiting friends who were uh, from all over god's green earth uh, talking about how times were going to get this way it's it's actually it's biblical yeah that times are going to get more and more turbulent and crazy and there's going to be all this upheaval so i i grew up knowing that it was coming but it is surreal to watch it play out and if you watch how if you if you research and you see who the players are that benefit from panic and despair and the loss of hope, it doesn't take long to connect the dots and see why the mainstream news media is doing doing their level worst to to push the panic, push the fear, push the loss of hope, and try to get everyone to quit and shut down their businesses and definitely cause maximum possible damage to our economy to devastate the United States. It's diabolical what they've tried to do. And I think uh, personally, they, they need to be held accountable for the harm that they've done and their their flagrant attempts to to do maximum destruction to our country. Look, we've got a president that's been encouraging the people. Why? Because if you're a leader, you want your people strong and empowered and informed and effective and happy and have uh, successful uh, and lives and thrive. 
And so when you see people trying to take that away, trying to cause panic and despair and confusion, that's an act of war. That's, an act, that's what an enemy does. The enemy wants you panicked and scattered before them so that you can be easily conquered. Yeah. And when you watch a mainstream news media whose owners, when you travel them all up, you trace them all up, there's only four entities now that own all of our mainstream news media outlets now. And they're all of globalist Marxist uh, political outlook. That's what they want. They want a central global government and a central global currency. And a strong, powerful United States isn't, doesn't fit into their model. Right. So they literally, once you understand that they're hostile, it's no longer a surprise. They want to break the economy of the United States, devastate the United States so that they can come in with the, well, problem, reaction, solution, right? The Hegelian dialectic. Yeah. They want to usher in socialism uh, as the savior. Well, that puts them in charge of everything and nobody else can ever get wealthy and challenge them for it ever again. That's the end game. That's what they're after. Once you understand that, then all of this upheaval really doesn't surprise you. You can see where they're going. And, and I actually, actually know how to counter it by staying happy, staying connected, staying uh, busy with your work, even from home, and keeping the economy rolling. Uh, pray to your God. Connect with your family. Help your neighbors. Uh, realize the sun's coming back out. Hold the crooks accountable. Prosecute them. Make harsh examples of them. And go after the network of corruption that's attacking our country and make a brighter tomorrow. Why? Because we, the people, are in charge. If only we will just assert ourselves and make it happen. Yes. Well, I I agree with all of that, and I love how you just hammered that all out. Before I get to the last couple of questions, we talked before we started recording, and we, you know, made a note to talk about Contraland, which you mentioned quickly. Um, yeah. And I want to have a, have a chance here to to hear you talk about that documentary that's coming out. Um, just give an update on it, and where can people find out more about it or support it if it's still yeah. needs support. Or- yes, ma'am. Thank you for that. Yes. So veteransforchildrescue.org is our website and we have a wealth of information there. We've got information on how the predators stalk our children on their cell phones, on the apps, on their Xboxes and every other way. There's, um, there's information about our documentary. There's all of our financials on there. Our guide star, our goal, our platinum, <laughs> rating by Godstar for for our transparency, all of our arrests, the the case numbers, the mugshots of all the predators. Um, I think we've got a a preview link of Contraland on there. So, and links to buy our merchandise and links to donate because we are a five hundred one c three nonprofit org. So it's a wealth of information, and most importantly, folks, there is a take action page where you can go there and learn how to help us in child trafficking and stop the the harm to the children. So it's all there and Contraland is now completed and we are beginning the the process of contacting all the networks to see who wants to air it and get it out to the masses. So the distribution process has begun and Contraland is complete and it is powerful and it is an unflinching look at child sex trafficking as many aspects of it as we could cover in 90 minutes. Of course, you'll never get it all crammed right. in 90 minutes or it'd be so hectic and busy. It'd, be, it'd sound like it'd be on fast forward. Yeah. But uh, it's a good piece and we're proud of it. It's going to serve very, very well, open a lot of eyes, and it's going to prevent a lot of harm to children in the future. And I'm so grateful for 
a free country where I, as a veteran and a citizen, I can round up factual information, experts, law enforcement, surviving victim, victims, and just show it to the people. Um, because yeah. obviously we're, we're not being told about it otherwise. Do you feel like that's something, is, is this something that families should sit down and watch together? Is there like an age cutoff Absolutely. you'd recommend? No. Well, look, um, you know, they're, in some cases, they're taking diapers off of infants and raping them. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there's no age yeah. at which is too young for these scumbags. Um, it's just evil, some of what they're doing yeah. to the kids. There's a lot of different types of abuse and motives. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a estimated 38 to $50 billion a year enterprise in the United States, child sex trafficking. Wow. And it is the fastest growing criminal enterprise on earth. So it's big. It's big. The you like to poke the big bears. Know. Huh? You like to go after the biggest bears there are. Well, look, I, I got <laughs> I a broken heart, man. Yeah. I got a broken heart. This makes me cry every day. Yeah. This is. That's brutal. And when, I, when you learn, when you talk to these girls and boys. Yeah. And you talk to the adults that have been through it. The ones that survive, most of them don't survive it. It's despicable. It's disgusting. This should not be a thing. This should not exist. No, a hundred percent should not. And as a parent, it's you know I think once well for me having kids, thinking of anything like that happening to your child is just awful, awful. Yeah, awful. and just, so yeah. look at look at my background. I'm a man of action. I'm not just going to yeah. sit at home and and feel sad. I'm going to go kick the pants out of the yeah. bad guys, right? I'm going to go take them off the street and put them in a freaking box where they can rape no more. Uh, yeah. Because I can, thank God. And as long yeah. as I can, I'm going to do that. And so I, I, my pain gets turned into anger. I'm ticked off. Yeah. And when I get ticked off, I take action. And I, I invite all of the you know, American people to take action with me. It's going to take all of us to put this to bed. Alfred Kinsey started a big promotional campaign to normalize chi- child rape back in the 40s and 50s. He went around a, on a, a campaign, very active um, I think demonic campaign to soften our legal system to child rape, our psychological health care system to child rape, and our educational system to child rape. And since then, we've we've it's been expanded rapidly, and we've now got an epidemic. So, it yeah. it took all those people to grow it into this big festering cancer, and it's going to take all of us to beat it back into a healthier community where we take care of our kids and not prey on them. Well. When that comes out, you know, we will certainly support it in any way we can. We'll blast it out there. We'll promote it. We'll whatever firepower we have. Thank you. It's yours and we'll send it. And um, there are some people that have already sent your information out to to link you up with because they've expressed interest in in being a part of that. So I've already sent that out and we'll continue to do so. And I appreciate all you do and you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I had fun with it. I hope you did too. Yeah. And I hope a lot of people see this and 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 gain understanding and uh and join us and be part of the solution. Excellent. I have one more question before we go. And it's a question that we do ask uh our guests because it's what we center on here at American Snippets. Um, we are strong proponents, and you you alluded to this a few times in the interview, right? But we're strong proponents of the American dream. Patriot, you know, I'm a military widow. Patriotism is important to me. This country is special to me. We gave a lot for it. 
Um, we'd like to see people taking advantage of it and doing their best to make it better, stronger, to, and more unified, right? So we believe the American dream is alive and well. We just understand that it's not a cookie cutter version for everybody. It right. looks different to everyone. So we're always very interested to know what that looks like for our guests. Like, what does that look, what is the American dream? What does it mean to you? Well, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's different for everybody. What is your dream? I, you know, I've gone for my dreams again and again. I've become a, one of my childhood dreams was to become a motocross racing champion. Well, I did that not as a professional, but at the local level in Vegas, I became a, a supercross and a motocross racing champion of multiple series in, in my late thirties <laughs> after That's the SEAL awesome. teams. And, and we have a country where we can do that. I became a rock and roll drummer for a while. I grew up playing in church and the drums and uh, in Vegas, we, we got together a band again, 210 agents. So a lot of them had been in, uh, had been musicians. Some had been in some pretty big time bands. So we, we got together, some of us and put together a band and started playing local parties and clubs just for fun once in a while. And so I went for my dream and I wanted to become a Navy SEAL. So I went and just did it. I went for it. You know, I didn't know if I was going to make it, but I, I, my determination was that they were going to have to kill me. Uh, to wash me out. I wasn't, you know, but I was allowed to go for my dream. And then with child rescue, I, you know, I'm like, I can't stand to look away from this. I've got to go do something and build a capability to fight this. Well, the American dream has allowed me to do that, to stand up a nonprofit organization and go counter this evil with good. And I thank God for the freedoms and liberties that our forefathers were so wise and had so much I believe divinely inspired wisdom and foresight to foresight to see how badly mankind abuses when they have too much power for too long. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So our founding fathers wanted we the people to be in charge, and what they put together with our Constitution and Bill of Rights was so beautiful, and it allowed us these opportunities in this American dream, and I celebrate it, and I've exercised it on multiple fronts, and I encourage everybody to do the same. Find out what it is that really makes you tick, your passion, and go for it. Just set one foot in front of the other, and you'll be surprised how far you get if you act out of passion instead of fear. Awesome. Thank you so much. So if people want to connect with you and follow you on social media... Yeah, Craig Sawman Sawyer on Facebook, uh, Craig R. Sawyer on Twitter. Real Sawman on Instagram, and uh, then um, you know all of our Vets for Child Rescue platforms yeah. on all the same. So okay. we appreciate you guys' support. Excellent. Thank you again so much. You have an excellent day. Thank you. You too. Thanks. All right, everyone. There you have it. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's show. I'd like to personally thank Craig Sawyer for being here as well, sharing his story. Uh, he's doing incredible work with his organization, Veterans for Child Rescue. And Barb and I would really uh, be grateful if you could check out uh, his organization, support him however you can. Uh, it's a great cause. And don't forget, we do a full featured article on every one of our guests each and every week that we encourage you to check out as well. You can do that over at americansnippets.com. It's the featured podcast of the week. Uh, you can read the full article, watch the video interview in its entirety. Plus, we include some social media links that you can use to follow 
Craig Sawyer, including his website, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and everywhere else he's at. Uh, appreciate you being here today. If you got value out of this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Share this podcast with a friend. Share it on social media. Make sure you follow us on social, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, at American Snippets. Again, so grateful that you tune in each and every week. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. <music>